We make choices every day. Some choices don't matter much. Some choices are fairly significant. This morning I chose what tie to wear, what socks to wear, what clothes to wear. Not really life-changing, significant decisions. Other choices we make are more significant. We, make, we choose what college we're going to go to, what field of study we're going to go into, what jobs we're going to take, who to marry, where do we live. These are big decisions. These are life-altering decisions. Then there are decisions we make that matter for eternity. In the Bible, we're given a couple of questions people are asked by Jesus. He asked the twelve, he said, who do, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, John the Baptist, or the prophets, or this or that. And then Jesus asked them an eternally significant question. He said, but, but who do you say that I am? And then in Gospel of John, he explained, He is the resurrection and the life, and those who believe on Him, though they, though they perish, they shall live. And then he asked Mary, he said, do you believe this? These are the kind of questions that are eternally significant. What are we going to do with Jesus? Who do we say that He is? Do we believe His testimony about Himself? This is the kind of question that will affect not only how we live right here and right now, it will affect and it will in fact determine where we spend eternity. As we get to the end of the book of Joshua... Joshua calls the people together and he brings them to a place where they must make such a choice. Open your Bible to Joshua 24. and you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers... And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in the old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor. And they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, and I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. And I sent Moses also and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them, and after I brought you out. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and and you came into the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with the chariots and horsemen under the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. And you dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zipporah, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel and set and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore, he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan and you came to Jericho. The men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And I delivered them all into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. And two kings, the Amorites... But not with thy sword, nor with thy bow. I have given you a land 
for which you did not labor, and cities which you built not, and dwell in them, and vineyards and oliveyards which you planted not, and do eat. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And as if it seemed evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, whether the gods your fathers served on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The title of the message this morning is Choose You This Day. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We gather today in a sense, in a, in a valley of decision. Father, we have to choose about Jesus. Will we serve Him or will we serve ourselves? Will we devote ourselves to Him or will we devote ourselves to something else? Fathers, we look today at what Your Word says. Help us to feel the weight of this decision. Help us to feel the urgency of this decision. Help us to feel the finality of this decision because truly those are the only two choices. Father, so many today seem to believe that they can not choose Jesus and not choose the world and they'll be okay. But today, open our eyes to see there is no Switzerland. There is no in-between. We either choose Jesus or we reject Jesus. Bring us to a point of crisis in this service today and open our hearts to understand that we must today, in this moment now, choose you let the weight of this passage and the weight of this choice be upon us and let each one of us search our hearts and search our lives to see what choice we are going to make help us not to worry about what decision the others in this room are going to make or let us not worry about those who ought to be here to hear this so they would make a choice but god we as individuals we must choose today who we will serve. Fill me with your spirit this morning. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in everything, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Joshua gathers the people so he can give his final farewell address and call on them to make a choice. Now, he brings them to Shechem, which is interesting. And it's interesting because when God first went to Abraham and told him that he was going to give him the land and that he made the promise to him, uh, Shechem was where Abraham was when God told him this land would belong to his descendants. And so what we see is we see God bringing everything sort of to a full circle. Hundreds of years before, God brought Abraham to Shechem and he said, look around, I'm giving you this land. And then hundreds of years later, and through lots of issues and troubles and things that have happened, God brings those the descendants of Abraham right back and says, I've given you the land. I have fulfilled my promise. God is just reminding us with this. He is awesome. His word is true and he can do whatever he says he can do. Now, as we look at this passage, there are three major breaks or themes in the passage. Right, verses 1 through 13 deal with the deeds of God, what God did for Israel. Verse 14 
We find the demands of God. And in verse 15, we find a response is required. Pretty much everything in Joshua 24 falls into one of those three themes. Here's what God has done. Here's what God demands. Choose you this day. And the lesson for us is the deeds of God and the demands from God require a response from us. When we look at what God has done for us and we understand the demands God has made on us, we have to choose. It requires a response. That There is no, again, there's no Switzerland. There's no neutrality. There's no fence. It is choose you this day whom you will serve. So what we're going to do this morning is kind of walk through those three ideas. The deeds of God, the demands from God, and our required response. So the deeds of God. In verse 2, basically, this takes us from the time of God calling Abraham up into the present day. And so I'm going to quickly summarize and go through what God does. God chooses Abraham. He looks down upon him and Abraham, though he is a pagan, though he worships other gods, the gods of his fathers, God chooses him. And God calls him and God gives him a promise to make him the father of many nations. This was an amazing promise because at this time, Abraham was old, his wife was old, and they had no children. They were both well beyond childbearing age. But Abraham believed God. God accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham left and he followed God. And God kept his promise and he gave Abraham Isaac. And the blessings of Abraham went to Isaac so his descendants would be as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. And Abraham had two children, or Isaac had two children. He had Jacob and Esau. Esau was not the child of promise. Esau was, uh, was their attempt to, or I'm sorry, I've got my mind. Anyway, no, that was heresy. Ignore all that. Um, they had Jacob they had Jacob and Esau, twins. Um, but Jacob was the child of promise. He was the one to whom the blessings would flow. Esau was given Mount Seir to possess it. Jacob and his children, they went down to Egypt. If you know the story, they went down to Egypt. It was kind of an amazing story of what God did. Jacob had 12 sons. One son he liked better than all the rest. The other sons didn't like that dad had a favorite, so they pushed him in a pit, sold him into slavery. He ended up in Egypt. While in Egypt, the favor of the Lord was very clearly seen upon him, and he rose to prominence wherever he went. He ended up in jail for a crime he did not commit, and he stayed there and languished there for several years until Pharaoh had a dream which he could not interpret. So... Finally, somebody there said, hey, there's a dude in jail and he can tell dreams. Why don't you bring him up? So Joseph comes up, stands before Pharaoh, gives the interpretation of the dream, tells him what he needs to do to prepare for this. Pharaoh's impressed. He makes Joseph the basically the second or third ruler in the kingdom, sets him up there. A famine sweeps the land. 
And things get so bad that where Jacob is and his family are, they end up having to come to get help. After they come to get help, Joseph reveals himself to them. And they're brought there to a place where there is plenty of food, plenty of land, and plenty of water. So that the people of Israel at this point, they do not suffer the rest of the famine. As they're there, they begin to prosper. Significantly prosper. And they begin to have multiple children, multiple children, and multiple children. So much so that in a couple of hundred years, the new Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph is terrified of Israel. His fear is if Egypt is invaded, the Israelites will side with their enemies and there are so many of them that they will cause the Egyptians to be put to slavery in their own land. So they start, they enslave them, they kill their children, they begin to do all of these things. And this goes on for several years until God raises up Moses. God raises up Moses to come and be the deliverer. And as God raises up Moses to deliver them out of the land of Egypt, it is a, a big ordeal. God does it with great signs and great wonders. He causes plagues to fall on them. He causes plagues to fall on the Egyptians, but not on the Israelites. And then he kills the firstborn of everyone who doesn't put the blood of the lamb on the lentil or on the doorway of their house. Uh, and, and eventually the Egyptians not just let them go, they basically kicked them out. Leave! Come back no more, lest we all die. And then after they leave and they've got up to the edge of the Red Sea, God stirs up the heart of Pharaoh, so he regrets letting Egypt, let the Israelites go, and they move out to chase them. And now the Israelites are in a hard place. There's the Red Sea before them, there's the Egyptians behind them, and they fear they're going to die. But Moses stands with his arms held wide. God causes a strong east wind to blow. It parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through on dry land. And when the Egyptians try, God causes the water to fall in on them and destroys them. And they watch the bodies of the Egyptians wash up on the, so on the shore. Then they wandered in the wilderness for many years. And through that time they wandered in the wilderness, God provided for them. He fought for them. He gave them the land of the Amorites. Um, at one point, a king tried to get a false prophet to curse Israel. But every time he would try to curse Israel, God would force him to bless them. Uh, until the point that the, the king was just frustrated and furious. And even he was eventually conquered by Israel. And then God finally brought them into the promised land where he gave them victory over all of their enemies. And it was all his victory. I mean, he, he emphasizes that. But it was not with your sword or with your bow. I, I did it. And once they crossed the Jordan, they entered the promised land. God gave it to them. He worked powerfully on their behalf. And now here they were. And it's just a reminder of all the deeds God had done for them to get them to this point where they are. Now, just as there were many deeds God had done on behalf of Israel, there are many great deeds God has done on our behalf. But there is one deed which towers over them all. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The greatest deed of God on our behalf was coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. But remember, Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus was not just a teacher. Jesus was not just a prophet or just 
a miracle worker. He was and he is all of this and more. But he is much more. In John chapter 12, we're told that the glorious vision of God in Isaiah was actually Jesus in all of his glory. So when we read Isaiah 6 and we see God high and lifted up and the angels covering their eyes and Isaiah saying, woe is me, I'm undone. That is Jesus, God, on his throne. And in Revelation 4, when we see the king on his throne, that is Jesus, God, who came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Scripture repeatedly tells us Jesus is God. We're reminded in Colossians and in John and in Hebrews, Jesus is the one who created all things. So the great and the glorious God of Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, the creator of all things, cast off a measure of his glory. And he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and he lived and he dwelt among us. And He taught great things and He did great miracles. And He helped people. And then after about 33 years of life, He was betrayed by one of the disciples. He was murdered on a Roman cross. But the cross wasn't a surprise. In fact, the cross was the whole point of the reason Jesus came. But He didn't come just to live a perfect life. He didn't come just to teach us great things. He didn't come just to even be an example of how we ought to live. He came to be the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. He came to be a sacrifice for our sins. And after fully taking the wrath of God for all of our sin in our place, He died and was laid in a tomb for three days. And after three days, He arose victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And now because of His sinless life, His sacrificial death, His victorious resurrection, we are able to be completely forgiven for our sins and have the hope of eternal life. This is the great deed of God. This is the great work God has done on our behalf. And this great deed... Leads to great demands. The demands from God. Now therefore fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye Him. In light of what God has done, in light of the deeds of God, we come to the demands of God. Fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and truth. Right? They were to reverence God. Right? God, to fear the Lord, is to understand He is great and awesome and worthy. To fear the Lord is what we see in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. We're to understand that He is the great and the glorious God who is worthy of our praise. Worthy. Of our devotion. And then to serve Him in sincerity and truth. It it, it is to to really be all in on serving God. Right? To to put away the other gods, to to not be half-hearted. It's not, it's a call to just give ourselves wholly to the Lord. That's what He's calling on them to. I mean, here they are. Think about this. They are 
They are in the land. It has been conquered. They have been at rest. And yet they are still in some ways idolaters. They are still serving the gods of their past. And what God is saying is, let that all go. Today what I'm demanding from you, today what I'm calling on you to do, is to choose me. To such an extent you forsake all other gods, and then you live your life devoted to do what I have said in my word. God is calling on them to do away with divided loyalty. He's calling on them to serve Him and Him alone and such, and as such, reject all other gods. Look at how serious it is in verse 19 and 20. And Joshua said unto the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, and He will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that He has done you good. Now, to me, that's a confusing statement. Right. So here Joshua says, serve the Lord and fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, put away the gods. The people will look at in a minute. They said, "Okay, we're going to do that. And Joshua said, oh, you can't actually do that. He's holy and jealous. He's not going to forgive you. And eventually he's going to kill you because you're not going to be serious about it. And so what he's saying to them. Is it, it is a matter of being all in. Right. One of my commentaries said, here's what this means. The key to understanding these statements comes in two other statements Joshua made, which affirm two of God's defining characteristics. He's holy and he's jealous. Both of these characteristics are part of God's very nature and set him apart from all other gods or people. So because God is holy, in order for us to serve him, we have to wholly dedicate ourselves to him. That's, I mean, ultimately, holy wasn't about morality. I mean, that's a part of it, but that wasn't the sole purpose of it. In the Old Testament, something was holy because it had been given to the Lord. Right? So there were certain pots and pans and braziers and things, and they were holy. Not because they were made out of a different substance than other pots and pans and braziers, but because they had been taken and they said, this one is yours. You use it at your house. This one, though, this one belongs to God. And because it was dedicated to God, it was holy. So because God is holy, we have to... Be devoted to Him. So we are holy. I mean, that's ultimately why we're holy. We're not holy because we're moral. We all fall short on that. We're holy because we are wholly devoted to the Lord. And because God is holy, that's the only way we can be is wholly devoted to Him. And because God is jealous, He will not, he will not let us have a divided loyalty. We cannot serve both God and mammon. We cannot serve both God and anything else. God is a jealous God. He, he wants our love and our devotion. And, and since the Bible uses the idea of a marriage, think about it like that's the best way to understand it. Are you jealous for your spouse's loyalty? Are you okay with your spouse sleeping around on you? Are you okay with your spouse looking at pornography? Are you okay with your spouse lusting after someone else? Are you okay with them? Being being in love with someone else and saying, well, I, I mean, I'm going to live with you, but I love them too. Is that is that going to be okay? Well, none of us are going to accept that. Why? Why? Why can we say, no, if you're going to be mine, you must forsake all others. If we can say that, how much more can God say that? How much more can God demand that from us? And so that's what he's saying is if you're going to say, yes, we're going to follow God. 
understand what you're saying. You have to be all in. You can't have a foot in the world and a foot with God. You must be all in. The people in verse 21 reaffirm. And then Joshua says, okay, you're witnesses against yourselves. You have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we're witnesses. Now, wherefore, he said, look, put away the strange gods which are among you and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. So he's saying they're, they're saying, OK, yeah, we get it, Joshua. We have to be all in. And we're here. We're here for it. We're all in. Joshua says, OK, then here's how you do it. You do it with these deeds. You go through your camp and you get rid of all of your idols. Now, keep in mind, in their day, idols were they actually had something, right? They probably had something in their little packs and they kept it hidden from others and then they would go home and they'd put it up and they'd pray to it and they'd hide it from other people. And what he's saying is, you go through and you find all those libels and you destroy those suckers. You take them out, you smash them, you burn them, you get rid of them. You get rid of all of those idols so that you're worshiping God and God alone. And then you yield your heart to the Lord. That's what it means to incline their heart to God. Right? So they were going to put these things away and they were going to surrender their hearts to God to say, I'll do whatever you want me to do. What you've said in your word, that's how what I'll do. That's how I'll live. That's who I'll be. And a part of what Joshua is trying to let them know is an affirmative response without corresponding deeds is worthless. Right? Any, any words before they will have value there must be deeds to back up those words. Anyone can say, I'm all in for Jesus. Anyone can say, I'm a fully devoted disciple of Christ. But do the deeds of our lives back this up? Now, our culture today would tell us Jesus would never make such a demand. Jesus just wants us to be happy. Jesus it is just this kind of... Happy-go-lucky kind of guy, and you you love me, and I love you, and we're just a happy family, and everything will be okay. But the Jesus of the Bible, he says this. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus absolutely demands our primary allegiance and our wholehearted devotion. If any will come after me. Right. And, and the idea of come after me, he's not saying, OK, well, I want to be saved from hell, but I'm not going to come after Jesus. No, to Jesus, it was all part and parcel. If you want to be saved from the wrath to come, you had to come after Jesus. You had to follow him to be his. And the only way to be his. Is to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him. So it's easy to say, I'm a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. I'm saved. I've been born again. But what does my life show? Does my life show the consistency of self-denial, cross-bearing, and following Christ? If it doesn't, dear friend, if it doesn't, you need to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ so that you may be born again. Because all those who are born again Deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Jesus. It is part and parcel. The redeemed and regenerated heart wants to do the will of God. 
And so Jesus absolutely makes a demand on our lives. This is the demand. And if we want to follow Him, if we want to be where He is, which is going to be heaven, then this is how we must live. And this great, the great deeds of God and the great demand from God brings us to the place where we must respond. The deeds and the demands from God require a response from us. Verse 15, and if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day. Whom you will serve. The God of your fathers. The gods which your fathers served which were on this other flood. The gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Or Yahweh. Choose. You have to choose. I mean that's kind of the point. Choose where your loyalties lie is what he's telling them. Now again God. This is one of the ways God is different. Yahweh is different than the other gods of the world. In this day, the other gods of the world did not demand exclusive loyalty. You could worship Baal and Moloch and whatever else God or goddess you wanted to worship. They didn't care. As long as they were sort of added in, they were fine. But Yahweh said, not me. No. No. If you choose me, you must forsake all the others. Yahweh demanded that they embrace Him and Him alone, and in doing so, reject every other God of every other nation in the world. And so Joshua lays out the choice. They can choose Yahweh. They can choose the gods of Terah. They can choose the gods of the Amorites. But here's the key. They had to choose. They were going to choose one or the other or the other. Now, the call to make this kind of a decision is not uncommon in Scripture. Right later uh, in the book, in the Old Testament, we're going to find Elijah coming to the people and say, how long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, I, I like I like that that's. The question. If Yahweh is God, follow Him. Because that makes sense. I mean, if there is a God, and if that God is Yahweh, therefore not Baal, or not Molech, or not the gods of the groves, then, then follow Yahweh. But if He's not, and Baal is God, well then it only makes sense to follow Baal and let Yahweh go. And I think to me, this is an enormous thing for us to get. If Jesus is who the Bible says He is, and if He did what the Bible says He did, then how how else could we respond but to serve Him, to be a living sacrifice. I mean, that's Paul's point in Romans 12.1. In light of all of the mercies of God, all that God has done through Jesus, the only reasonable response is to serve Him. If Jesus be God, if He died for our sins, if He rose again, 
then the only rational response is to serve Him. But if He's not, well then, why come here at all? Why pretend at all? Why not go for what is God? What has ultimate meaning? If it's not Jesus, then what has it? And give yourself to that. But, Elijah's point, quit playing the halves. One is God, one is not. You decide, and then you give yourself wholly to that one. That's the same point Joshua is making here. This is what Yahweh has done. This is what Yahweh demands. Choose it. But if that seems evil to you to serve Yahweh like He demands, then go after the gods of our fathers who worship or were. Go after the gods of here, but, but don't play games. Don't be a Sunday morning Yahwehite. Be all in for one or the other. Choose who you're going to serve. I mean, it is an either-or situation. We, we must choose. We can choose Jesus, or we can choose something else, but we must choose. And it is one or the other. This is a, a picture I like, I saw on the internet. It's either God or the world. Satan owns the fence. Right? There's no in-between. It is either God or something else. Being on the fence, being half in the middle, is actually rejecting God. It's rejecting Jesus. It is choosing the other. We must choose. When do we choose? Well, we must choose you this day. And this is a great phrase. Choose. So we have to choose. And choose you. So this is a very personal choice. But you must choose this day, who you will serve. And the idea of choosing immediately in the moment, right now, is also very common in Scripture. Paul writes, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted in the day of salvation. I have succored thee. Now is the time, is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day. This is the day of salvation. Paul took a promise from the Old Testament about God bringing freedom and deliverance to His people. And he urged the Corinthians to seize the day. Jesus has come. God is now at work in the world forgiving sins, saving souls, and changing lives. He is ready today to grant salvation to all who will come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. The people in Isaiah's day were looking for the day, but we are looking back at what has already happened. Since Jesus has accomplished this on the cross, today is the day of salvation, and this requires an immediate response from us. Choose today whom you will serve. And there are two types of people who need to wrestle with this decision. One would be those who have never repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Some have never truly been born again. Have never truly come to Christ and, and been saved. Today is the day of salvation. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You know, I, I was raised 
in Free Will Baptist churches even. And we there was never a time when we weren't active in church that I can remember. But there was a day in which I had to choose. Now, there were lots of times I felt convicted. There were lots of times I was aware that God was dealing in my heart. I remember the very first time God began to deal in my heart. My granny had a, a picture of Jesus knocking on a door. And there was no handle on the door. And so I asked my granny, I said, why is there no door handle on the door? And she said, that's the, the door to the heart. And Jesus knocks. He can't open the opening is on the inside. You have to open it and let Jesus in. And so how do I know if Jesus is knocking? She gave me the very helpful answer of, you'll know. So I went to bed that night and she told me, lay down and pray, Jesus, if you're ready to save me, knock at my heart's door and I'll open the door. And so I laid in bed. I was 10, 9 years old and I prayed that prayer and immediately I knew the Lord was knocking at my heart's door. Well, that wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what I wanted. I mean, I desperately didn't want to go to hell. Make no mistake. I knew about hell. It was all bad. No desire for that. But to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow Jesus, man, by nine, I'd already known I was joining the army. And I had an idea of what soldiers did. And I was pretty sure Jesus wasn't okay with that. And I I wanted to be a soldier in every sense of the word and do all of those things. So I, I wasn't ready to surrender my life to Christ. And so for years, I went to church. And the preacher would preach and the Holy Spirit would convict me. And, and we did real long altar calls back then. I would lay and just stand up and just grip the back of the pew like that and try to think about anything else in the world other than what the Holy Spirit was doing in my heart. Then there came a day in which I had to choose. I mean, up to that point, I wasn't saved. I knew the truth. The truth was moving me, speaking to me, convicting me, dealing with me, but I'd never embraced it. And then one night at a revival at the Fort Gibson Free Will Baptist Church, I stepped out and I walked down and I came down and I cried out the only prayer in the Bible I knew. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I just said it over and over and over again until I was saved. I was not saved. Any of those days up until that moment where I chose to cry out to Jesus. The Holy Spirit dealing in my heart didn't make me saved. My knowledge of the Bible did not make me saved. My faithful church attendance did not make me saved. Even my awareness that God was calling me to salvation did not make me saved. I was not saved. Until I went and called out to Jesus to be merciful to me, a sinner. You may be here today and the Holy Spirit's dealt in your heart and you know it's the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you're saved. You may be here today and you can express the gospel. You can explain it clearly. That doesn't make you saved. You may be here today and answer the right doctrines about who Jesus is and what He did. But that doesn't make you saved. You must choose to call on Jesus to save you. Repent of your sins and believe in Him. And until you make that choice, you are not saved. That's one person who needs to choose today. The other is a person who's never really taken their relationship and their devotion to Jesus seriously. The sad reality of, the, of, of our day is there are thousands of people in America 
who are professing believers in Jesus Christ, but they do not live with any sort of sincere devotion to Christ. They have never taken up their cross, denied themselves, and chosen to follow Jesus. They want just enough so that they feel like they're probably not going to hell. But they don't want enough to make them do anything that would make them uncomfortable. They don't want enough that would make them deny themselves. They don't want to do enough that would make them change the way they live, speak, act, the way they prioritize their life, how they react to stressors, what their values are. They don't want that. And if that's you today, you, you've prayed, you've repented, but you've never, you've never really given yourself to Jesus. You've got to choose this day who you're going to serve to. Jesus is not okay with that sort of a half-hearted devotion. And I know we think He is, because everything in our world is okay with that. I mean, our world is largely okay with some sort of nominal attendance in most things. But Jesus isn't. He knows who He is. He knows what He's worth. He knows He is worthy of all of our devotion and all of our lives. Starting in January, we're probably going to look through the book of Revelation, start in Revelation 1 and work our way through to the end. As part of that, we're going to get to Revelation chapter 3, where we meet the Laodicean church. Laodicean church, which is rich and increased with goods, feels they have need of nothing. They're not immoral. They're not wicked. They're not idolaters even, like some of the other churches. From what we can gather, they are wealthy people. They are happy people. They are living their best life now. But they're not all in with Jesus. They're not hot. They're not cold. They're just lukewarm. And what does Jesus say to them? I will spew you out of my mouth. You make me want to vomit. Jesus knows who He is. And in His mind, if we can look at who He is and what He's done and be like, Ah, I mean, I don't want to go to hell, but I'm not really going to give myself holy for you. That's disgusting to him. For some of us in here today, the need is to get off the fence. And to get all in with Jesus in our lives, in our service, in our devotion. Choose you. This is a very personal decision. Joshua says... But as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. As for you and your house, what are y'all going to do? Because it's your decision. And, and here's the way it works. It's such an interesting thing, the way God works. I mean, it is a very individual decision, right? My mom and dad were fully devoted disciples of Jesus long before I was. But their being fully devoted disciples of Jesus, that didn't save me. That didn't make me devoted. That, that wasn't my choice. I had to choose. They prayed for me. They encouraged me. But their choice didn't make me. I had to choose. So this morning, you have to choose. No one else can choose for you. And, and here's one last thing, and we'll close. There is a responsibility, accountability in this. You are the only person in the world who can choose Jesus for you. But understand this too. You are the only person in the world who cannot choose Jesus for you too. Right? Some people say, well, I, you know, this one person was in church was mean to me, or I've met some hypocritical Christians, or I've known people who were like this, or there was this preacher, and he kind of was no good, and there was this, and there was that, so I just don't know. Here's the reality. That's a cop-out. 
And you'll stand before God and be cast into hell for all of eternity. You are the only person who can keep you from Jesus. Not a preacher who hurts your feelings. Not somebody mean or legalistic in church. Not parents who live inconsistent lives. You. You're the only person who can choose Jesus for you. You're the only person who can reject Jesus for you. Whatever decision is made today, it will be your decision. And you will be held accountable. Choose you this day whom you will serve. So let's stand.